I don't need to tell you the church today is facing challenging times. Lots of people are making bold predictions about what the future may hold, and generally they're rather pessimistic projections. Well, I'm no prophet. I don't know what the future holds, but I know this. I know that God is still God, and the church has faced challenges before. In fact, as the first century was coming to an end, it was a time of great stress for the church. Persecution was on the uptick. Paganism dominated the entire culture and set the tone for the mores of the people. So the sexual chaos we see today, that was common at that time. And the cruelty and the violence in the culture, whether dealing with the unborn or dealing with total strangers, the kind of violence we see today, that was common in that day as well. We think about ethnic and racial tensions today. Well, guess what? In the Roman Empire, you had many different peoples and you had lots of hatred. And this pagan culture that fed all of these toxic ways among the people, it was set against the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why the persecution rose, and that's why Christians felt themselves embattled. They were pressured from the outside, but also they had problems within because the paganism of the culture would sometimes seep into the church. And it's no wonder because, well, if the church is more like the world, the world no longer persecutes it. So it was tempting often for the church to yield, and that was a problem that they had to face at that time. Now, it's at this period, the end of the first century, that a remarkable book in the New Testament was written. It's the book of Revelation. It was a book given to John when he was on the Isle of Patmos. He was exiled there because he had been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was facing persecution. And in a vision, vision, the Lord Jesus commanded him to write seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, sharing with them key thoughts they had to take to heart if they were going to survive and thrive in the culture where they, in which they found themselves. Well, I want to begin a series this morning on those seven letters, but I want to call the series Seven Letters to the American Church. Because even though they were written for churches in Asia Minor, Nowadays, we speak of Turkey. It's that area of the world right there. Though these churches were in Asia Minor, what the Lord has to say to them is universal. It speaks to the church in all times and in all places, and in particular, it speaks to the church when it is embattled, as we find ourselves today. So that's where I want to turn. Starting today, we begin with the letter written to the church at Ephesus, easily the most important church, city in Asia Minor. It's in Revelation chapter 2. The letter begins in a somewhat curious way. It's written to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The angel. Who's the angel 
Well, scholars disagree. Angel means messenger, so many suggest it's the pastor. The letter is written to the church, but also to the pastor. Others say, not so much the pastor. On literary grounds, they say that doesn't make sense. And then they say, you know, it doesn't really make sense anyway, because everybody knows pastors are no angels. But none of that really matters. None of that really matters. We're told in chapter 1 that the churches are represented by lampstands and that the angels of the churches, pastors or otherwise, are represented by the stars. And look what it says in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then words of praise. I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, this really is high praise. When you think of the pressures they were under, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, you have endured, you have persevered, you have continued to labor without growing weary. They labored to spread the gospel, to teach people the faith to support the poor, to minister to others and their needs. He says, you haven't grown weary in all of that. What's more, you've taken a stand. You're not going to compromise. In fact, if you wanted it back in the first century, you were lived in Ephesus, you were really into branding, you'd probably say the church at Ephesus was the church of no compromise. They're the church that said no to false teaching. In fact, when some infiltrated the church and they said, well, we're apostles, we're messengers of God, we're speaking for God, they tested them. They tested them, you know, by the scriptures and found that they were wanting, they were not speaking for God. And the church at Ephesus said, no, we will not have it. The paganism on the outside is not going to infiltrate this church. So these are people who took a stand for Christ. And they took a stand for Christ when it wasn't easy. That's why it comes as such a surprise when Jesus turns and issues a rebuke. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've forsaken the love that you had when you first came to faith. You can imagine what it must have been like. Ephesus was the heart of the occult in the whole region. Magic was practiced. People went through ritual, superstitious activities, all trying to bring down blessings upon themselves, good fortune upon themselves, but also curses upon their enemy. They came under the dominating power of the devil. Their families suffered for it as well as the community itself. But then God, in his grace, stepped into their misery. The gospel came to Ephesus. People believed and they were set free. 
We sang a few minutes ago about being set free. The people were set free. Can you imagine? In, in the first flush of, of their new experience, they took all the paraphernalia connected with the occult and they threw it into a huge bonfire. They knew they had something different, something better. And so they were full of joy and love for the God who had mercy upon them. And out of that overflow, they started serving the Lord. They started serving other people, sharing the gospel with people. Out of that overflow, they stood by the truth. The problem is, the problem is that the love had begun to leach out of their lives and they were quickly becoming an empty shell of a church. They still had their convictions. They still were ready to say no to the world. They would take a stand. And like dutiful employees, they would still go about doing their church things. But something had been lost. They were going by memory. And the consequences, the consequences are dire. Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come. Excuse me, let me back up. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, you may still be called a church, but you'll no longer be a church before God. Your lampstand will be removed because being part of the people of God is more than just taking a stand on moral issues, ethical issues. It's more than taking a stand against sin and, and things that we recognize out, are outside of the will of God. To be among the people of God is to be full of love for God and because we love God, love for people. Apart from that love, apart from that love where, well, a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He says, if you don't have love, it doesn't matter how religious you are, it doesn't matter how sacrificial you might be, you don't have the real thing, what God intends for us to have. And so here's this word to the church of Ephesus, they had stood strong and they were still standing strong, but Jesus says, bad days are coming if you don't re realize how far you have fallen and repent and get back to the place that you were. Now, it's, it's not as if everything was wrong with the church. It's not as if there was no life at all. That's what he says in the very next verse, in effect. Verse 6, he says, you do have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I'll talk about the Nicolaitans in a future message. But the point is, they still hated some of the same things that Jesus hated. They still were standing with Jesus. There's still life there, but Jesus is warning them there's danger. Can they turn things around? Can they be changed? Well, absolutely. The Lord's giving a warning. He's not 
speaking a word of woe. He's not, he's not simply announcing that the church is going to fall. He's saying, you have a choice. You have a choice, and I'm telling you, you need to repent and do the things you did before. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, in view of all this, just thinking about the church today, a church like ours and other churches in America, I'm thinking here particularly of churches that seek to be faithful to the Scriptures, that want to follow Christ authentically and truly. Churches consisting of people that don't want to simply go with the tide of the times, but want to stand true to Christ through everything. We need, we need for churches like that to consider, to reflect on this whole idea of faithfulness and love. Folks, it's entirely possible for us to take our stand and be sure that that's wrong and that's wrong and insist that we're going to be true to the Bible and we're not going to tolerate false teaching. It's entirely possible for us to get all that right and in itself it's right. Jesus does commend the church at Ephesus for taking a stand, so it is important to take a stand, but it's entirely possible for us to do that while at the same time we're losing touch with God. Our love for God grows cold. Our love for one another is dim. And when that happens, eventually, eventually, our stand against the world is going to crumble because the world is already making inroads when we've ceased to love. It's so easy. It's so easy to insist that we are right and get out of and, and lose touch with God. But when we do that, you know what we become? We become another special interest group. We stand for our ideology, for our politics, for whatever. But we've lost touch with Jesus who saved us. And so faithfulness means living out of that spiritual fullness that belongs to believers in Jesus Christ. That's what we want. See, the most important thing for the church in America to do today is not to pronounce on this or that issue. Now, mind you, I'm not saying that the church shouldn't pronounce. I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak. We should. They, should in, they, they needed to in Ephesus, and they did, and Jesus commended them. But the most important thing is not that we pronounce on issues as a church or that you as an individual make sure that everybody in your family and everybody in your circle knows the way it is. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that we know God, that we love God, and that full of God we love other people. That's the most important thing. In other words, spiritual life is the most important thing. The best thing we can do in our time and in our culture is to be the church full of Jesus. That's really what we learned from this letter. We need to repent and do the things we did at first. You remember when you first came to Christ? 
I do. Listen, I wanted, I wanted everything that God wanted from me. If I did wrong, and I did wrong a lot, I was quick to confess and ask for forgiveness. There was no delay, like I'm not so sure I really want to pray. No, I, I went to God and asked for forgiveness because I wanted forgiveness. And I, I tried to stir myself up to prayer and Bible reading, and often I would get frustrated with myself because it was so hard to stay awake when I was praying. And I didn't understand half of what I read in the Bible, so I'd get bleary-eyed and give up. But I loved God because God had loved me, and I was going to learn to pray, and I was going to read the Scriptures, and I wanted my life to be formed by Him. And anything that was in my life that got in the way, I wanted it out of my life. And when it came to going to church, I wasn't just going to church. I was I was week by week, seeking to connect with God in worship. That's what I wanted to do. Those were the things I did at first. That's what we're called to do, see, is to do the things we did at first, not just going through the motions, but seeking to rekindle that love. Just the way married couples that hit a rough patch, sometimes they're able to turn it around because they say, you know what, we've got to start connecting again. We've got to do things together. We need a date night. Oh, our anniversary's coming up. Let's make it a big deal. See, it's this effort to, to reconnect, and that's what is desperately needed in the church. As a church here, First Woodway, we want to stand by the Scriptures. But listen, the first thing, most important thing for us to do is not to be right. We want to be right, I'm talking about in our opinions now. The most important thing, first and foremost, is to be alive. Alive. So we recognize, we recognize where we were. We turn from the lethargy. And we do the things we did at first. Now, one of the things that... I remember when I became a Christian, I suddenly realized the significance of the Lord's Supper. I never did before that. I rarely went to church, just a handful of times in my whole life, and really didn't get the Lord's Supper. I mean, I knew what it was supposed to represent, but it was, just didn't mean a whole lot to me. But I come to Christ, and He changes my life, and I start seeing the Lord's Supper as an opportunity to reach out to Him to receive from the Lord, to have the, the truth of the cross fill my mind and heart and change my being. That's what I realized. Well, we're about to share the Lord's Supper this morning. And here's an opportunity to do the things you did at first. Here's an opportunity to take seriously with a, a holy openness as we eat and drink, and to, to reach out to the Lord. Fill me, Lord. Forgive me for my sins. Change me. Let your love flood my being that I might love others as you have loved me. This is the opportunity for that. There is no better way to take a stand in our day as the people of God 
than to be alive to God. That's the first thing. If we're not alive to God, nothing else matters. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die on a cross, bearing our sins, that our sins might be borne away. Thank you for the grace, for the mercy you have shown us. And with all our hearts, Lord, we we ask you to work in our lives now. Help us to appreciate the, the, the goodness of our God that we might fall in love with you afresh. Lord, fill us with life. Forgive us. Forgive us for allowing ourselves to grow lethargic in our spiritual life, even as we go about church business, even as we... Even as we take a stand for you, Lord, we can lose touch with you. Lord, we want with all our beings to be touched by you now. We want to touch you now as we eat and drink. Lord, do your work within us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.